Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Where To Now, which is the University of Auckland Festival Forum as part of our 2018 programme. We live in highly charged times. Since Harvey Weinstein was accused of sexual harassment, assault and rape by multiple women, the bastion of male privilege has been under sustained attack by the Me Too and Time's Up movements, with a roster of men called out for similar behaviour. Not only in Hollywood, but in the worlds of politics, media, art, sport, high-end charity events and even writing. Some surprising characters have been netted in the maelstrom. Margaret Atwood, the author of the feminist novel The Handmaid's Tale, for example, faces a feminist backlash over her voicing of concerns over the Me Too campaign. Is it possible to adopt a nuanced stance in such a climate? And what would that look like? For an analysis of this most extraordinary disruption of traditional male-female relations and its likely long-term consequences, join Kurdistani poet and leader of the first gender studies program in Iraqi Kurdistan, Choman Hadi, Māori development and media specialist Ella Henry, US scientist Hope Jaran, and the UK writer and comet actor Robert Webb speaking with Charlotte Graham Maclay. We hope you enjoy it. What a stage. Um, so I'll, I'll start quite general, and anyone can, can take this one. Do you think that there are things that have happened in the past seven months that have changed or are likely to have changed in a lasting way, do you think, since, since that, that revela- revolution almost that has been brought about with that Me Too hashtag? Shall I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, let me start by paraphrasing Michel Foucault's statement about the one who has the right to speak will determine what we know and what we don't know. And the one who has the power to determine what we know and what we don't know determines how we act and who we are. So I think it's been very important that that this movement has started because much of the time, many of the stories related to women, especially sexual abuse, has been kept in the dark. We have not heard these stories. We have not questioned these men in power whom we all adore. We have seen one side of their life and we've glorified them. It has been significant and it's very important to hear the other side of the story and to know what has been kept from us. Mm. Is there anyone else who has anything in particular that, that, that has come out over the past several months that they think is really important or is likely to, to sort of make a lasting change? Or do you think that there hasn't quite been enough water under the bridge yet for us to know? I mean, I, I, I hesitate to immediately sound a negative note, but I mean, what, from coming at it from a masculinity point of view, what I can't help noticing is the instant and absurd backlash, um, which, you know, this kind of... Well, it, it's, it's getting so you can't even open a door for a woman anymore without being accused of uh, multiple assault. And uh, <laughs> is it all right to say, hello, Jane, that's a nice dress you're wearing? Your breasts look marvellous in that dress, <laughs> without, being, without being told that I'm stepping over this imaginary line. I mean, all of this nonsense um, that gets, you know, exaggerated. Like, they've never been told, you know, what the difference between paying someone a compliment and making them feel uncomfortable. It's just kind of, have you met a woman? Have you, I mean, did you, did you have a mother? I mean, what? what? So, you know, that, that sort of reaction has been... Uh, tedious and uh, but not surprising. Yeah. Um. I, I was just going to say that um, 
One of the interesting consequences for me of the, of the Me Too movement has been um, that it is obviously an empowerment uh, agenda. And because all of my academic life has been focused on Māori society and Māori history, which is a history of disempowerment um, through the process of colonisation, that um, I have enormous support for any agenda that delivers or attempts to deliver empowerment. And obviously, gender issues are one of those areas across multiple cultures and periods in human history that have been hugely problematic. Um, and I say that coming as I do from a culture, which those of you who are Māori who are here, are there any Māori out there? Good to know. Um, you know, uh, we, I come from a culture of a duotheism, uh, where, where our father, the sky, and our mother, the earth, are our cosmological um, origin story. And so at the time when Europeans arrived, we were a society, I believe, marked by gender complementarity. I mean, I come from a tribe named for a woman, not her husband, so clearly he was useless. <laughs> Um, and she was fabulous, you know, I mean, but that can only happen in a country not necessarily matriarchal or patriarchal, but one in which gender roles are shared and power is socially shared. Now, what happened when Europeans arrived is that we were colonised by not just the British crown, but by patriarchy. And I'm of the view that our men folk learnt how fabulous it was being a white man, because who wouldn't want to be a white man? Um, and they thought, we'll have a piece of that. We'll buy into this little agenda of women are inferior and women should shut up and do what they're told and cook their eggs. Um, and so that, apart from the devastating impacts of political colonisation, has also been the colonisation of our minds by a patriarchal mindset. I drifted a little bit from the question, but I think that <laughs> that is my way. Um, those of you who come to my lectures will know this. Um, but the, at the core of that is the agenda for the Māori Renaissance, which has been part of New Zealand society for the last 50 years, has been around regenerating that manawahine power of women. So what I see happening with the Me Too movement and, and the women standing up and, and feeling like not only do they have the power but the right to voice their issues. And, I mean, for some people, complimenting their dress is scary. Not in my social circle, but, you know, I mean, so, so when you find a broken people, and I speak as a Māori now, knowing that a significant proportion of my people are broken. That's why we are more likely to end up in jail, in hospital, to be the mad, the bad and the sad, you know, to die 15 years before other races in this country because there are a large number of us who are broken and you cannot fix the brokenness by disparaging it. You have to fix the brokenness by empowering the people to see themselves as not victims, to see themselves as having a voice and power and rights. And so if the Me Too generation is going to deliver that to women around the world, then I think it's a very good thing and timely. Oh, please. It's very early for applause, bold, but good for you. Um, so, drawing on what both Choman and Ella have just said, because it's interesting what you say about which voices are in the conversation and, and which are missing. Do you feel that the Me Too movement needs to go further to start 
encapsulating some of the women's voices that don't really seem to be in it. Like in New Zealand, the Me Too movement has felt like largely a white women's movement primarily, and in the States, of course, it came out of Hollywood, and they're trying to broaden it now with Time's Up to include women across a bunch of different industries. But do you think that there needs to be some really deliberate broadening and inclusion of that movement next? Um, yeah, it's interesting that the examples that you gave involve celebrity, um, because uh, one thing we see with the Me Too movement is that it does feed into our need for uh, scandal. Right? And it does allow us to channel our fascination with powerful men, right? Um, let's see. Um, I think we're still deciding what this is, right? So, so it's happening and women are telling their stories, but I think collectively we can't sort of decide is this is something men do and it's very, very widespread. Right? If this is a very common occurrence for women, then this is, this is a very common practice that men use to move through their lives, right? So, so what is it? is it? Is it right or wrong? So if we're going to believe it's wrong, and, and folks haven't always believed this is wrong, right? Ask, ask your grandma, ask your mom. You know, this used to be just the way workplaces operated. And so, so now... If we're moving into this thing where it's, we decide that this is wrong, well, is it, a, is it a crime? Is it a mistake? Is it a sin? Is it, you know, and, and it, we're, so we're still kind of wrestling with, with, with you know, what is this and, and what to do about it, right? Because if it's a mistake, that's different than a crime. And, and if it's, if it's, a result of ignorance that's different than being a, a, a devious, premeditated sin or something like that, right? But I think we're so very, very far from a world where women have ever received any kind of justice for, for any of the sexual violence that's been committed against them that we can't, we can't yet imagine what justice looks like what restitution and safety look like. And I think dissecting men's behavior again and again is one way to keep us from the focus of, you know, in the 70s we used to call it women's liberation. We used to think of a world where, we used to dream of a world where women were safe and healthy and whole. And, um, well, you talked about broadening it across across women, and a, and that's you know obvious. We need to do that. Um, I think a lot about broadening it across time. Ask your mother for her stories. Ask your grandmother for hers, because you know we are part of a long history of surviving this stuff, and and all that matters matters too. Mm. You know, it's not it's not about men and what they do and what they've always done. It's about whether or not we're ever going to build something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people have been talking about it as a generational, um, a generational rift in feminism, right? 
um, the the people, you know, the Germain Greers of this world, you know, um, who sort of say, well, you know, you can just reject that advance if you speak up and you get fired from your job, then obviously it was a crap job and you should get a different job. Um, that, that whole kind of thing, and it's been framed as a generational debate. But I was reading um, the journalist um, Moira Donegan, who created the um, what people might remember was called the shitty media men list. Um, it was a very sort of brief and ill-fated list where she and other journalists in America made a Google spreadsheet of all of the men in media that they thought other women journalists should avoid and people could contribute to it anonymously. Um, of course, it got leaked very quickly and um, due in the ensuing massive backlash, the whole thing got shut down. Um, but she was saying that she sees it less as a generational thing and more um, a, a rift between this sort of... Um, these people who see themselves as pragmatic and realistic, like, you know, Germaine Greer does, um, and the people who are still quite idealistic about what a, a healed kind of gender relationship could look like, and that would need to be a whole society and whole community kind of thing, which is, as you say, almost too big for us to imagine what that would look like in terms of the amount of change that would be needed. Um, I wondered if that was something that you had given some thought to, because I know a lot of your postdoctoral work has has kind of centred on that in terms of genocide survivors as well. If I, if I go back to your earlier question about including other women and mm. not just having white women talking about sexual abuse, um, I think this is a very interesting question because uh, many women, especially immigrant women who live in the West and who have the space to speak out, it's very difficult in closed communities to speak up about this. The, the platform is not there. There's social media, but um, there isn't a public debate about this as there is in the West. And if you are an immigrant woman, a refugee woman, an ethnic minority woman living in the West, um, you're risking, um, you're living between the intersection of sexism and racism. So every time you, you consider exposing the men in your community, you're also exposing your community and yourself to further racism. So you're really, you, you have to be very um, careful about how you do it and when you do it in the right circumstances. I have, I have seen women who have come out about abuse in their own community, which has fed into the hands of the racists. So it's a very delicate balance how to do it and so on. But to come to your second question, which was about... Um, Sorry, I, I lost the plot. Yeah. Um, that <laughs> about, I think I'd been reading in some of your the doctoral pragmatic. research about the, yeah, yeah. the social and communal yes. healing that yeah. was kind of needed as So I think the, the pragmatic attitude is the kind of woman like my mother who believes that men are just like that. That's their nature. God made them that way, and, and the responsibility lies within you. You are the one who sets boundaries, and I think most of us here don't believe in that anymore, right? We believe that gender roles are socially constructed, characteristics are socially constructed, that caring could be learned, that brutality could be learned, there could be violent women, there could be kind men, and there are out there in the world. Women are not better than men, they're not more peaceful, they're just socially brought up to be in certain roles, and men are brought up to be occupying other roles. So if we believe in that, that men and women are essentially not different from each other, that we could be as bad or as good as each other, then obviously there's a lot of uh, space for debate and discussion because 
I'm not going to just accept and say, well, this job is bad, my boss is harassing me, therefore I should take another job. My, you know, my, my way that is different from my mother and grandmother is like, we have to tackle that boss because if I'm gone, the problem is still there. He will be harassing the next woman uh, and the next and the next. And it will go on because we accept it as part of men's essence, which is not even true. So I think it's very important for us to um, accept that social responsibility and, you know, agency of men and women in this uh, and, and to tackle it and to say, no, men are not by nature sexually violent and aggressive. Men can learn to be caring, and many men are, despite the way uh, masculinity is constructed in societies where violence and um, aggressiveness and selfishness is part of manhood. There are plenty of men out there who are not like that, despite their social upbringing. So it's, it's simply not true, and we have to tackle the issue rather than just moving on from this job to the next. Mm. So what do we say that we want out of this movement then? Because it used to be there was that kind of lean-in feminism where it was that we want the jobs that men have got and we want pay equality and we want to be as powerful as men or we want to be able to be the CEO as well. And I think that, that people have kind of are starting to push past that idea. What, what do we say that we want out of all this? Because it's, it's hard to even figure it out in your own head, right? I, I think that's a really interesting point, but I, I mean that notion that the Me Too movement is some kind of end point ignores the fact that it's part of an evolutionary process. Um, and and to, to show what that means for me, I'm going to just take you on a, a life story, sorry. Um, but my, my grandmother, my, my mother's mother was born in the 1880s in the aftermath of the land wars, living in abject poverty in the far north. My mother was born in 1919 um, and didn't experience electricity till she was in her 20s. Um, all they both wanted for their children, particularly their daughters, was a better life. And, and I was born in the 1950s and they genuinely, my mother believed that that's what she delivered for me, was a better life. And I've gone on to university and I've, I've, I've gone to have, have the kinds of privileges which my mother and my grandmother could never have dreamt about. And, and so my daughters, who are the next generation, I've tried to raise them to believe that they are no one's victim. That was the one thing that was passed down to me through the three generations before me of women who were survivors of cataclysmic change. Um, and I think that they are extraordinary people, my daughters. I'm so proud of them. Um, and, and they are nobody's victim. And, and maybe that's the most important role I've ever played in my life, is to raise women who are strong and believe in themselves. Occasionally a little princessy, but you know. <laughs> Sorry, I hope they're not out there. Um, I will pay if they are. But um, that to me is one of the most important things I've been able to do, and I hope one day to get to know granddaughters that will be even stronger and braver. And so, um, you know, I don't, I mean, monsters are made. I don't think they're born. So we all have a responsibility at an individual as well as a social level to try really hard not to make monsters. So what can men do? And I'm looking here at you, Robert. Um, lucky, to, me, lucky me, I'm here to speak for all men. All of them. <laughs> Um, and whatever men, we decide should happen to men. All men will agree with what I say. Yeah, great. So, um, so that's fine. 
And if you don't, you can buy a book and meet him at the signing table. Um, so what can men do to ensure, because I understand what Elle is saying, but then how do we stop the burden of kind of um, not being victims and, and sort of having to redeem men from themselves and all that sort of thing from falling on the women that they've victimized? And I know in your book you mentioned that about hearing your wife apologize to you for kind of raising issues with you and thinking she's having to raise this issue and oh, she's yeah, also no, having I mean, to apologize for raising this issue. Yes, when the, when the nagging wife goes postmodern and has yeah. to sort of apologize for the nagging. I'm sorry that I'm a, such a fucking stereotype, but yeah, um, yeah no, that's, that's a tough beat. I mean, it's, it starts so early. I mean, you know, I've written a memoir and I speak from my own experience, but my hope was to ring some bells. And I'm talking about, you know, the 70s and 80s in a rural area of England. But it seemed to me that by the time I was about seven, there were some very straightforward rules about how you were supposed to be a boy. You were supposed to be cheeky and cajoling and disruptive and noisy, and you preferred sport to reading, and uh, you were running and jumping and climbing trees. And, and you know, I, I said that the two, I couldn't do any of that because I was, I was very shy and I, was, I didn't, I hated sport. I was a countryside coward. I quailed at the sight of a nettle or a wasp. Um, and, uh, but one thing I say that the, the rules that I did understand were, and I called them in the book, the sovereign importance of early homophobia and the paramount objective of despising girls. Because if there was one thing worse than being a girl, it was being gay, and only gay people played with girls. That much was clear. Um, and so, you know, and you, you grow up and you get this feeling that, that, that gender conditioning being told how to behave because, because according to your sex is something that just happened to other people. It happened to girls, it happens to gay people, it happens to trans people, it didn't happen to us. And if I'm trying to say anything in the book, one of the things I'm trying to say in the book is to men, is that it did happen to us. Um, but we find it incredibly easy to forget because we've been given this notion that we are the default human. I mean, it goes, I mean, it's, you know, you can take these tiny examples from everywhere and you say, oh, you're being ridiculous that, you know, that the sign on a gent's loo is the shape of a human with two arms and two legs and a head, and on a lady's loo is the, sh the shape of a human wearing a skirt. It's a human plus difference. And it's the, the tiny things everywhere. You, you're standing at the pedestrian crossing waiting for the green and I'm with my girls and they're going to go out and build a snow And it's kind of, you know, it, it, it just, it's there in the language, it's there in the culture, it's there in the economic practices, it's there on television. You know, I've heard gender, you know, trying to, uh, gender neutral parenting being described as gardening in a gale. Um, because, you know, you can say, okay, here's a, you know, we, my wife and I, Abby, we don't um, ban, uh, you know, the color pink. And of course, we let our two girls play with dolls when they wanted to. And if they want to dress up in a pretty dress to go to a party, of course they can do that. But we also made sure there's plenty of Lego around and they both do karate. And I'd like to think if we had boys, then we'd have done the same thing about, you know, creating, leaving all those options open. But the truth is, it's not a level playing field. If you have two non-gender non conforming boys, that's harder. Because, you know, a girl goes to school wearing, a, wearing trousers. Nobody bats an eyelid. Uh, a boy goes to school wearing a dress. That's an issue. And why? Because he's taken a demotion. Um, because the, the, the male realm and the female realm are not considered... Uh, of equal value. So it's, it, this is massive, and, and you know, the fact that some sleazebags in Hollywood have been found out, which is a good thing, um, of course it's a good thing, uh, 
is not is is a it's a pinprick mm. uh, in a in a gigantic <coughs> problem. <laughs> so. So what can Groen men finding themselves in this situation do? You've obviously done a lot of if you work. you find themselves in the situation of molesting women. No, right. no. <laughs> um, those ones I'm, should yeah. just shoot themselves into the sun. That's right. fine. Yeah. Um, but no, in terms of being in this, in this social environment... Mm. Um, obviously, ideally, everyone would just parent their kids differently to how they were parented and, you know, stop it for the next generation, although I realise that's quite simplistic. But um, what... You've obviously done a lot of work on yourself. Well, <laughs> well it, I, read the no, book. No, thank you. No, no, that's, yeah. that's very kind. Um, well, I've, I've written a... Yeah, I've, I've written a... I've had to think... I've written a book about it, so I've, I've had to think about it so you don't have to. That's I mean, that was definitely the, the idea. Mm. But... Um, what can we do? I mean, it's just a question of acknowledging. Um, you know, there's the, there's the stuff about masculinity <clears throat> that is actively harmful to boys and men. The stuff about emotional repression. Man up, be a man, boys don't cry. You know, bottle it up, shrug it off. All of these negative emotions, which we are almost specifically trained not to recognize. Uh, and you've, you know, you grow up without those skills of being your own emotional detective. And so, and it usually has to come out somewhere, and often it comes out as anger. So you get men who are who get angry when what they're actually feeling is fear, or they get angry when they're in grief, or they get angry when they're ashamed, or that kind of thing. So that's harmful to men. But on the other hand, in terms of work and professions, of course, we are the beneficiaries of this, you know, this system that is that has grown up. I've been the benefit in you know my day job in British. TV comedy, I know that I've been the beneficiary of this positive discrimination scheme for men, uh, which has a name. It's called the patriarchy. It's not a word I use in my book because I want people to read it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, David and I turned up, David Mitchell and I turned up at the BBC in 2006 and we said, well, we've had a couple of series of our radio show. We'd like to do that on TV now. Uh, and there were, well, in terms of, here's a white male double act. Uh, Fry and Laurie were not too distant memory. Newman and Baddiel had a series. Plump and Dennis had had two series. The, so far, these are just the guys that met at Cambridge. Armstrong and Miller were a going concern. And there, there are three other male double acts. Is it okay to have another male double act on TV? Well, would you believe it? Yes, it was. And I happen to know I can name three female double acts who, who I knew at the time, all of whom are not doing it anymore who would turn up, and the reply they would get would be something along the lines of, yeah, but we've had French and Saunders now, and, you know, fingers crossed, Miranda White might do a special. So that's really girls on TV, comedy, sort of done for this year, if not the next five years, really. And so, you know, it's just, um, you know, the, the positive discrimination scheme for men. I think you have had some... Um have done some work around this, Choman, in terms of you've obviously developed a, a curriculum for a brand new gender studies um, department, which is, must be wonderful. Um, but I think you ran a bit of a campaign, right, to try and to try and get everyone on board with um, with what people needed to start considering. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's one thing that the feminist movement has done is to make sure women, at least um, legally, have the right 
the same rights as men, you know, um, at least in certain countries. In my country, there is still some, uh, there's still polygamy, for example. Men can have four wives with given certain conditions. But I'm talking about your standard best country in terms of legal equality. You have legal equality, you have sort of equal opportunity, and you, you have many things that have provided more opportunities for women that has been a given women like us opportunities to, to succeed and to come on this stage and talk. But what we haven't done, I think, is working with men. And I think that's something that's recently taken more attention, that masculinity is something you can't bring equality by just empowering one side when the other side doesn't believe in it, right? You, you have to bring equality when both sides work together for it. And that's one thing we try to promote in the Gender Center in the American University of Iraq, Soleimani, and we keep telling our students, feminism is not women's war against men. Feminism is men and women's war against inequality. Now, this was very difficult at first, but we've had several examples, like uh, Obama coming out and saying, this is what a feminist looks like, and uh, men, public figures saying that they were feminists and they were supporting men's, women's rights and so on. These were moments that we utilized, and, and we did a campaign called Mr. Feminist, uh, where we encouraged men, students, professors, and staff to... Um, be photographed for a social media campaign holding up statements uh, in support of gender equality. So some of the statements were, I am a feminist because, uh, and some of it was, I pledge to support women or whatever, because we figured some men don't feel comfortable saying they're feminists. And some women feminists don't believe that men can be called feminists. This is a sensitive issue. I personally disagree. I think anyone who fights for inequality, uh, to, to eliminate inequality, is a feminist. Um, so we had over 60 people taking part in the campaign, which rippled through the community, actually, because feminists are usually seen as, seen as men-hating women, you know, usually mostly lesbian, probably, or single and unattractive and not married. So it was very interesting to change that. And I think we need to more, work much more on masculinity and how um, you know, when I teach about masculinity and my students get offended, I always ask, um, do you identify with this man we're talking about? You know, he's a rapist, he's not nice, you know, he's, he's selfish, he's... Um, and they say no, and I'm like, so why are you offended? You know, this is not you. Obviously, this is not you. If you identify, then there's an issue we need to address. If you don't identify, then even you should be able to see that this is not right. Right, that's really good. Um, it's interesting because part of this backlash has seen um, publications in particular trying to get, and this has happened with Trump as well, right? There's been this sudden, this sudden quest among, um, among sort of well-educated, left-leaning media publications to find like the average person to be a commentator so that they can speak to the average person and those people won't feel left out or whatever. Um, but it has been quite in some cases has been quite ham-fisted, right? Like The Atlantic um, hired that writer, Kevin Williamson, briefly, who believed that women who had abortion should be hanged. And that's them going, well, we have to find a balancing perspective to all this feminism. You're like, mm, not like that. But um, So it sounds like what you have managed to do there is, is find a way to strike that balance to bring men into that conversation or bring uncomfortable people into that conversation. I think it's also important that we acknowledge patriarchy is not just about men. There are many women who collaborate, who participate, who are complicit. I mean, our mothers pass down these values to their sons, right? They're all part of the system. So 
both patriarchy and feminism, there's a mix of men and women. I mean, it's men and women who believe men are better, men and women who believe men and women are equal, you know. Um, and it's very important to stress that because I think, obviously, usually it's seen that patriarchy is men's privilege and it's about women. Feminism is about women's privilege and it's about women, and it's not at all like that. Mm. Could I say just one caveat to the, the male feminist thing, which I, I think that's brilliant, um, but I would just, because I've got, I was sent one of those t-shirts, and it, I can just say, it's, it's a very easy t-shirt to wear, yeah. but I'm not really interested in, in a, someone, who, a, someone who calls himself a male feminist if he doesn't know where the mop is. Um, you know, I say in the book, the personal is the political. Yeah. Um, that basically, you know, you put a wash on, and, and maybe you dry the clothes, and you kind of expect a medal. Um, you know, the, the whole stuff about all of the unpaid, relentless, boring, uh, unprestigious work that needs to happen in a house, particularly a household that has children, uh, is still not equally shared. And so, you know, I speak for myself, I'm trying to get to, I could lie to you now, but I won't. Uh, I haven't quite got to 50-50, but we're nearly there. Um, but, it, but it's that whole thing. Who is the default person who takes time off work when the kids are home from, are sick off school? All of that stuff. Um, so I, sometimes I see men wearing that T-shirt. I just kind of wonder. And I speak as someone who is at the other side of the world when it was my daughter's seventh birthday today. So I, <laughs> so I can't talk about you know my you know my own set of priorities. But that's just unfortunate. But it, but it, it's it, it, it's a question of you know putting your your time and energy where your mouth is. Yeah. I'm so I'm suspicious of t-shirts. I know. <laughs> t-shirts are London. T-shirt on. Okay. <laughs> I think it's very important to first of all break, break the stigma of what feminists are. Yes, it's That's a good first step. Yeah, especially absolutely. in communities where feminism is very new and it's very seen as radical and negative and so on. And it is an unloved word. Um, and it's an unloved yeah. word. And it's, yeah. it's perceived to be generally just women. Um, I think it's very important for men to know that whenever they believe in equality, they also be entitled to be called feminists. But I agree with you. I think that's... That's what I was saying earlier. We've managed to bring men, bring women out of the household and, and get them to go to work, but they still do all the housework or the majority of the housework. We haven't got to, we haven't managed to bring men back into the household. So, and we need to move in both directions. Women can have paid jobs and be successful. Men can also do a lot of housework. And I think there was an image of, uh, you know, we have the, the, the image of feminism, women, we can do it. Uh, and there was an image of a man holding a baby with a, with a hoover and saying, we can do it. And I think we need more of that, you know, that you can do all the things that women can do. And in fact, it gives you a lot of independence and, and strength. It doesn't make you a wimp. It doesn't make you weak. It makes you more desirable as a man. <laughs> um, Hope, you wrote a couple of years ago a, an op-ed um, in the New York Times that was fantastic and started a lot of debate, I think, um, in which you recounted some of the stories that women graduate students had told you about their interactions um, in science departments with men. Um, and you might want to elaborate on, on some of those, I'm not sure, but um, I just wondered what, whether in that couple of years since you wrote that, whether you think people in science, I guess, of any gender, had started finding ways to push back against some of those stories that you were being told, where people were sort of sending really inappropriate emails to people whose theses they were supervising or, you know, and so on and so on. 
Um, have people started finding ways to push back against that, or is your inbox still as full of those stories as when you wrote it? My experience is that things in science are actually getting worse. Um, I know it's tempting to talk about men's feelings and, and their experiences in terms of what sets up um, uh, an attitude towards this or that, but it's important to remember that these actions serve clear structural purposes. Uh, within science, uh, the domination of women is very clearly a mechanism that serves to create opportunity for mediocre men. You know, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. And, and we see that now more than ever because funding is so tight, because support for the sciences has, has plummeted. So, so, and I'm talking about the United States, I'm not exactly familiar with what the statistics here are in New Zealand, but um, after the war, during the space race, about 6% of the national budget went to science, to research science, and that dwindled down to about 3%, and then it stayed at 3% for about the last 35 years. So over that 35 years, we've also been graduating all these scientists. We've been educating new generations of people who want to do science. And so now the, the competition for a job in science is an incredibly tight. And even once you have a job, keeping it funded and getting the nickels and dimes together to practice science in a laboratory, incredibly tight. And the public doesn't generally know this because we have a lot of feel-good rhetoric about all the great things science can do. We have these great programs to turn girls into scientists, right? And I always say I'm not going to get involved in one of those until we have a program that turns boys into nurses, <laughs> right? Because we, we don't have, right, we, we, don't, we don't have the same urge to fix boys that we do with girls. So there's lots of stuff that goes into that. But, but um, what we see that the mechanism for this is the same thing we see in female oppression all over the world, is that it comes down to sexual violence, um, economic disparity, equal pay for equal work, and reproductive rights, right? So it, it's on those three prongs that becoming scientist becomes untenable, that there's sexual violence in our laboratories and at our field sites and just walking around the world, that um, we don't achieve equal pay for equal work. We, we work twice as hard to get half as far, and I can show you statistics on that. And um, our um, invoking reproduction during the course of a scientific career is highly problematic in terms of, in terms of negotiating, uh, continuing the workflow, or having any kind of support for maternity or anything like that. And now, in our colleges and universities, are more than half women, right? Girls are, are achieving more in high school and they're moving into the universities, but we still see them shunted out of those programs before they can assume the leadership positions that we'd assume the pipeline would get to us by today. So we have to, in order to, to, to keep mediocre men in power, we have to, we, <laughs> have invoked those three prongs stronger than ever, right? And, and so it's, we are telling our stories. We believe this is wrong now. We didn't used to talk about it. But there are still institutional realities that are holding this in place. And, and I, often, I often think about um, it's our inability to even conceive of our institutions not supported by those realities. Our inability to even conceive of a world where we are safe and we have 
control over our fertility and we have economic sovereignty. Um, I, 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 often, I often think we have to put the, the cart before, we, before the horse or else we're just gonna keep going in the same circle. I was actually going to come to you on that, Ella, because I read somewhere that in your, your PhD, um, in part of your PhD research, you had looked at the mainstream film industry and the Māori film industry in New Zealand, and that in the Māori film industry, you had found quite a different environment for women to in the mainstream film industry. Can you explain a bit about that? Because I think sure. it speaks to what Hope's talking about. In this regard, I think New Zealand is unusual in that we have a thing, you know, the Māori screen industry is a thing. Um, it's acknowledged by the government, and so there are very few other indigenous communities uh, in, in the world uh, who are able to create a whole industry founded on their cultural value system um, and identity. So I thought it was really interesting to look at success in that industry and make a comparison. One of the things that I found was um, that's interesting and 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 kind of different about the New Zealand Māori screen industry is that there is a much higher level of participation of females across the whole industry sector. Um, and so that um, equality, I suppose, of numbers is very unusual in industry. So there are women um, in significant numbers in all of the major craft areas of film and television production. That's unusual in and of itself. And so when I, a few months ago, was asked to talk about sexual harassment in the New Zealand um, screen industry, I brought up the fact that I'd done some anecdotal research around the community that I engage in, asking about experiences of sexual harassment, and what I found was there were none reported. Now, that's not to say it doesn't exist. I'm sure it may have, but there were very... What seemed to come through was that Māori men and Māori women were participating in an industry where their cultural value system was the most important thing. That was the reason they were in the industry, to tell authentic Māori stories. Um, and, and so they were, and they were working in equal numbers. And the thing is that, you know, because we are such a small, because we are such a small population and we all kind of know each other, um, I think if any Māori man picked on a Māori woman in the industry, A, she might hit him, <laughs> and B, one of her big scary uncles, brothers or cousins would definitely do that. Um, so there is a kind of social cultural imperative in there that's a social control mechanism. But really I think what's happening here is that this is an industry that was built on mutuality. Um, but what, anecdotally, a few of the women said they had actually been harassed sexually by white men when they'd worked on big motion pictures that come to New Zealand. So that got me thinking because the other night I was invited to speak... I'm not even sure how or why, at the Auckland University Feminist Society on their decolonizing feminism panel. So it's been all about feminism for me this week. Um, so, which was really interesting because halfway through my presentation, I said, I have to tell you, I'm not a feminist. I'm a Maori. Our problem is colonization, not men. Um, and that's a thing also, um, because we have to fix ourselves. Not only do we have to fix ourselves, we also have to do that within a context of a country that's still struggling with its colonial history and which has tended to extinguish um, many of the more insidious acts that created this nation. So, so we have to do all of that as well as deal with survival and work and you know the things that you were talking about. 
So when we find an industry that we're able to work in together collaboratively, it's a, it actually becomes a, a, a very productive space. And in fact, I interviewed non-Māori who worked in the Māori screen industry because, they, they, because it was cool. And we feed you. Well. <laughs> you don't get to look like this without take, loving eating. Um, and, so, and so that was, I guess, one of the most fascinating insights that I brought to the, this you know, group that I spoke to on Monday night is... Um, I have to fix up a whole bunch of other social issues besides my relationship with men. Um, and I remember when I was doing other research, there was an Aboriginal activist who said, oh, feminism, isn't that that tiff between bourgeois white men and women? Um, I have to leave here safely, don't I? Um, so, nah. so, go so, for it. So the reality of all of that stuff turning around in my mind as I sit here is that, that and the point I came to the other night is that all of those who live in societies and cultures where inequality is somehow entrenched in the culture, in the social mores, in the values, we all have a job, a role to play in ensuring those who have the privileges in that society take responsibility for those privileges. So, so if it's white male privilege or white female privilege or, or, or even you know, aristocratic black privilege, we all have a social role to play to create a society that highlights the fact that if you have that privilege, you also have the responsibilities incumbent upon the privilege. And, and, and if you don't do that, well, then you're basically a prick. Um, so... <laughs> There's just there's many ways we could go after that. Um, I guess I'm wondering how because part of the part of the backlash that Rob mentioned in his very first answer was around around people feeling like the mechanisms for enforcing the things that we have decided we don't want to put up with anymore are inadequate, and we probably all agree that those mechanisms are inadequate, right? But um, there are some people who think that, um, I mean, we obviously can't even agree on what the things are that we're not going to put up with as well. Um, but I just wondered what, what mechanisms can we use in our day-to-day -day lives to try and start putting our foot down more about some of these things happening for any genders because part of the backlash has been well you know going on twitter and saying it is wrong um you know because that that's trial by jury and it's not fair but you know the the court system is a system that has re-traumatized sexual violence survivors for generations um and you're lucky if you even have a case go to court and a lot of these things aren't cases that would go to court anyway um, you know, people, there's been a big debate and I guess one of the elephants in the room is someone getting up in the Q&A panel of a writers' festival in Sydney a couple of weeks ago and, and deciding to do it there. Um, but, you know, what are some of the mechanisms that we can work on in our day-to-day -day lives to start kind of taking away some of these blocks, you know? Before we start talking about mechanisms, I think mm. one thing about the Me Too movement that has been um, interesting is that um, a lot of things have been banged together. You know, mm. um, many women's experiences have come out about um, sexual experiences in their lives many years ago, recently, um, some of which would, we would obviously not quantify or we would not call rape. 
right? Um, some of it has been uncomfortable sex. Some of it has been um, being put under pressure by a friend until you give in. Some of it has been, but it's 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 a very difficult thing to um, to identify that that there isn't just. Um, it's not all about rape. We're, what we are trying to identify is there's a continuum of sexual entitlement by men, uh, which um, the, the extreme side is raping and sexual harassment and, and continuous um, actions. But actually, there are much milder versions of which you know it includes. Um, you have a one-night stand with a man, and he feels that it's all about him because that's what he's grown up. The porn culture tells him so. The films tell him so, and so on. And I think. Because everything has been banged together in the Me Too campaign, that's also created a reaction, hasn't it? Because people say, well, she stayed there, didn't she, when, when he was trying to have sex with her, and she didn't walk off, so that, obviously that wasn't rape. No, that wasn't rape. Um, it wasn't rape, it was something else, but it's still to do with um, the way men are taught um, from a very early age that sex is about them. It's about their pleasure, it's not about a woman's pleasure, it's not about mutuality, it's not about sharing. And um, how many of these stories have come out, and I think it's been very interesting for us to revisit, reconsider, and think about sexuality in general, uh, and not just call it rape. I think there's a continuum of different things that have come out that has been interesting. Mm. And the fact that consent should not be our only yardstick for yeah. good and bad sex and good and bad relationships, right? Like there's so many degrees of bad relationships that go beyond just consent, mm. um, which. I think it should be, you know, it's easy for me to, you know, just say this, but but, but for, for young men, men of any age, the, the bar is not consent. The bar is enthusiasm. I mean, just have some self, have some self-respect. Yeah. Yes. Um, but you know, I don't know how you turn that into a mechanism. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm I'm not talking about like legal kind of things here. I think we're all just sort of wandering around kind of thinking, okay, well, we don't have to, we're being told we don't have to put up with these things anymore that we, that we always did. Um, so, so how do I go about not putting up with it? You know, that's the challenge, right? Yes. Um, the next, thing someone, next time someone says that thing to you at work, you kind of think, what do one I do of the now? Things that's, that's happening, and I mean, we're here having this conversation now because of it, is, um, is, is real and meaningful dialogue. And the fact that um, men and women all over the world can have conversations now, which 10 or 15 years ago they might not have had, um, as a direct consequence of the kinds of things that are happening and being highlighted, the kinds of issues that you raise around, you know, universities. Don't get me started on universities and men. That's a whole other issue. But, but at least, you know, I... I come from a culture that didn't have a written language and, and, and only a couple of hundred years ago we had the written language introduced to us. So all of the thousand years of the Austronesian diaspora was imprinted on our culture and was transported intergenerationally through language. So for us, talk is not just about communication, it's literally spiritual engagement. 
And so for me, dialogue is not just talk. It's, it's really deep discourse. And I love the fact that I get now to live in a world where I get to celebrate my culture and engage in those activities. And I want that for everybody in this country, that we can have meaningful conversations and not feel embarrassed about our position or our, um, our standpoint, that we can, you know, men can be brave enough to be weak and, and women can be, um, you know, strong enough to be who they are. I mean, that's that's the real outcome of deep and meaningful dialogue. And the fact that that train may have left the station in the last short while across multiple countries and cultures is, I think, cause for real celebration, you know, that, that there is actually movement, that, that, that this is not the world of the 1950s where treating women shabbily across the world was invisibilised because we didn't have open access to each other. So technology, I think, is facilitating the dialogue, but we still have to do it. We still have to be brave enough to, you know, take off the T-shirt and um, actually have a meaningful conversation. I think what Ella is saying is so important. Um, I worry sometimes that our that our urge to let's go past this and talk about how to change things also reflects our discomfort with these stories, and that we have to keep telling these stories. I hear so many of them. They come to me in my job, and I can't deliver justice. I can't give people what they want. So, I accumulate and I carry these stories. I'm sorry. My mother and my grandmother, they lived in shame and isolation. And I don't want to live that way. And the practice, the the ritual of telling these stories and not giving our silence to the institution that harms us. Sometimes that's what we can do. And we're women and we survive. That's what we do. And telling our stories to each other is part of that. And that's all I know for sure. It's a hard thing to walk with, eh? Like it's, and, and this is, I mean, for a lot of people, the past seven months, and, and for those of you who have been doing this work for a long time, the past however many years, has been really difficult for people. And, and some people find it really hard to be part of the conversation because of things that have happened to them or people they know. And I know that that's something you, Choman, have have struggled with in, in your work, understandably, in interviewing these women who have felt more pain than most of us here could could ever imagine, um, and and that effect on you. Um, what kind of ways have you found to to process some of that and get to a point where you can rejoin the conversation? Yeah, I th I think what you both said is very important. I think this conversation, what's significant about it, is not just a conversation between women where men are shut out, where women gossip 
Gossip is a very functional thing for patriarchy because usually women gossip about other women and they are silent about men's, you know, power. And sometimes in feminist circles it becomes women gossiping about men and men are excluded from the conversation. I think the Me Too movement has been very good in engaging both men and women. It's an open conversation between all sides, all interested sides, anyone who is interested to engage. And I think because it's not only men who have to learn that you know, self-respect and sensitivity and um, to unlearn selfishness sexually. It's also about women unlearning all the expectations of sexuality and that they are there to, even if they're not interested, even if they're tired, if, they, if they're not in the mood, they still should have sex with a man because he's their husband, because he's their partner, because he wants to, because she loves him or whatever. I think it's been very interesting for both sides. But to go on from there, um, the woman I interviewed, and, and this is a very um, interesting thing about uh, debates about sexual violence. So the woman I interviewed for my book uh, about the Anfal genocide, they, um, the Anfal genocide happened in 1988 in Iraqi Kurdistan. And there was extensive gassing and mass graves and so on. And, and some of the women obviously experienced sexual harassment and abuse and rape, and some of them were sold into prostitution, were given as presents to Arab tribes and so on. But because at the time, in the 80s and 90s and until recently, talking about sexual harassment was such a big taboo, most of these women would never talk about it. I mean, even when I had revisited them several times, it was very difficult for a woman to talk directly to me about sexual abuse. It was always implied, metaphorically. It was always running around the circle. But now, in 2014, um, ISIS comes to Iraq and it enslaves um, Yazidi women, Kurdish women of the Yazidi faith, and it buys and sells them in Syrian markets. Uh, many of these women uh, had been sold more than 30 times. They were sex slaves to their owners. And then um, the public discourse changes and suddenly the Kurdish community wants to talk about sexual abuse because it's also about bringing perpetrators to justice, exposing ISIS and their crimes. And these women are pressurized. If the women of 1988 and Fal genocide were pressurized not to speak, the women of 2014 genocide are forced to speak. Sometimes journalists go there and, and the tribal leader will say, you have to talk to him. It's important for us, to, for you to tell your story. And I think in both incidents, what, what is not respected is a woman's choice. Some women do find talking about sexual harassment and experiences as such um, therapeutic and, and, and it's their way to, um, you know, seek some justice and acknowledgement. Some women don't. And it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do, to push people into speaking or taking part in a campaign like Me Too. And I know many people who had been sexually harassed and would never say, did not feel comfortable to come out and talk about it. I think in all of this, it's very important to see how the public discourse influences our choices of speaking and silence and how women's choices should be respected, whether they want to speak or not. But I lived with these women that um, the stories of these women I interviewed for five years and, and, and I got very, very ill by the end of it. I couldn't finish this book I was planning to write. And it was very difficult because um, I think as human beings we tried, we, we sort of ultimately believed that generally people are good and that justice will, will prevail and there will be, truth will come out. And there are many moments in history where that's not true, where the evil succeed, where people who are victimized will never have justice and they have to live with that. 
And I had to live with that, that there are so many women who are suffering and are victimized in so many different ways, politically, sexually, economically, and they will never have justice. And I know this story. And what do you do with this story? You carry it in your body, in your nightmares, in your pains, and your, you know, and it, it's very difficult to do. At the end of the day, what you could do is just give voice because you cannot do anything else. And I think, I guess the Me Too campaign is doing the same thing. It's giving voice to those who want to speak. Mm. Yeah. Um, we might open it for questions quite soon, but so just start, just start thinking, and I'll say a little more on questions nearer the time. But um, one of the things that I deliberately left to the end is Choman mentioned that this is a debate for or a conversation for everyone. It's not men shut out of this conversation. And one of the things that I think we as a society haven't quite figured out yet is what happens to the men who do these things? Um, what do we do with them then? And I know that some people at the moment are still at the stage where they don't really care that much, which is fair enough. Um, but, yeah, I was reading a journalist who, who interviewed a, a bunch of young men who had been um, expelled from various colleges around America for sexual misconduct um, kind of uh, allegations. And they, some of them felt that they had been isolated even further to the point where they felt like they were never going to get a job, they were never going to be able to go to another school, and these are men in their early 20s who now think that they, they there's no part in the conversation for them, um, you know, and, and you know, one of them had said, well, what, what's the end game? What do they want? Do they want me to kill myself? Like, what, you know, what, what do I do now? Um, and I think it's fair enough for people who, who don't want to hear that just yet, um, but I just wondered if anybody had any thoughts on... How, how we try and bring men back into the conversation and what we ask from them when we do, which is a really hard question. I, the other night, was faced with a similar question and I, what immediately came to my mind was Mandela, after he came out, sought to unite his nation through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there were many critics of it, but that notion that one of the most victimized, uh, or one of the greatest victims of apartheid came out of prison and said, I don't want, I don't want revenge. I don't want um, to kill all the oppressors. I want us to figure out how to live together. And the best way that he could come up with was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think that that's a, such a noble way of providing an opportunity for us to deal with reconciliation. Because we have to believe that everybody can be redeemed. There has to be, I mean, our capacity as a species for inhumanity is extraordinary. And we have 5,000 years of written history to prove that. We've been monsters all over the planet. Um, but if we really want to work towards the better society, um, then we have to figure out ways to deal with redemption. Otherwise, we just turn all the monsters into outcasts and then they produce more monsters. And I, I, I don't know what it looks like as a, as a 
gendered truth and reconciliation process, but I think there's something in there. And I think there's a way, I genuinely believe there's a way for everybody to be redeemed. Does anyone else have anything on that? Carol, I, I think it's, um, it's, I mean, one of the things I do, when I started working in my university and there was no gender studies there and um, they didn't know much about me, so in my first semester I started teaching feminist literature. And I'm a tough grader, I'm not easy grader. I, I am fair, but I don't hand out easy grades, so I had a very bad reputation that she's a feminist, she, she teaches radical literature, and she doesn't give grades, and she hates men. And one of the things <laughs> I have done in my life is that, yes, I am a woman, I've experienced many horrible things in my life, uh, being a woman, being a Kurd, being a refugee in, in the UK, but I am a happy person. I am a well person. You know, I, I, I don't hate anyone. I, I really like, I like my male students. I genuinely do. And they finally realized that over the years. <laughs> I think it's, it's very important. I, one of the other things I tell them is that I have married three times. Surely that tells you I don't hate men. You know? I, still have, I still have faith. I think it's very important to, to, yeah, to say that we're not seeking revenge. This is not a witch hunt turned around. You know, this is not... Um, we're seeking justice, we're seeking a change in society. That change doesn't include just us, it includes also you. It includes many of the new generation. Older generations, it's very difficult sometimes to converse with them on certain issues, especially in my country. They're very rigid, they're very set in their ways, religion and tradition and so on. But with the, at least with the new generation, we have a we have hope to change the way, the dynamics of relationships, love, sexuality, uh, to open up about this and to have a, a conversation. I think there is a lot of hope that things may change, at least, if not now, soon, in the future. Um, we might bring it to the questions portion of the evening. Um, you can make your way forward. I think the house lights were going to magically go up. Oh. Um, well, there's some microphones. Oh, here we go. It's just very slow. That's classy. Oh, there um, are humans out there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Hi. Um, so, there's microphones uh, definitely up the front. Are there ones in the middle as well? I actually can't see that far. Nope, just up the front. Um, you might want to make your way down to queue if you have a question. Um, and we'll come to each microphone alternately, so just wait um, for me to come to you. Um, usually this is where I tell people to ensure that their um, question is a question, but I think just an acknowledgement on this topic as well, that um, it can be really hard to separate your question from wanting to make a personal statement. Um, so I ask that where you can, you jump straight to the question part of your question so that we can get through everyone who wants to ask one. Um, and also an understanding that, that a lot of people in the room will be holding their own kind of personal experiences on this. But I understand that it, it might be hard to separate the personal from the question, so just do your best. Um, hi, we've got one at the front. Hello. Hi, now that you've terrified them. <laughs> we got straight to the question. Okay. Um, I teach English to young women at a high school in Auckland, and something that recently came to our attention was an author called Alexia Sharman who wrote uh, a famous novel for young adults called The True Story of a Part-Time Indian. Um, he used to call himself the Indian du jour, so he's a First Nations writer from Seattle, who it's turned out recently we've discovered that he's kind of the 
Harvey Weinstein of the Seattle literary, literary um, community. And most of his victims are actually young First Nations women who are most vulnerable and most looking to him for support. Um, I also teach girls who are now saying things to me like, I feel really bad that I watched a, a film, and at the end I realized it was a Harvey, Harvey Weinstein film. And I've read comments about if we had taken out of the Louvre every piece of art that was produced or painted by someone with a questionable background, we would have empty walls. Um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are going back to Hollywood and to the, the famous men that started this conversation at the beginning of the night. Where do we stand as consumers? Um, are we complicit? Do we forgive? Do we separate the art from the artist? I'm just interested in knowing what your thoughts, what your thoughts are. It's a great question. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Um, so did someone ask what's the question? Uh. Um, it was basically about our responsibility as consumers of art um, or pop culture, if there is such a responsibility. And I reckon we could do another hour and a half on that. Um, but if anybody would like to take a punt. Um, I mean, there are... Oh. Sorry. I mean, there we'll come to you next. I mean, do you have physics at your high school? <laughs> right. So Newton, F equals MA. He hated women's bodies so much. He was also heterosexual, but he, he claimed that his greatest achievement was that he died a virgin. <laughs> right. So, so, so you don't you don't you don't want to know too much about your heroes. This is one thing, but um, um, I think it's I think there's value in teaching our students how to live inside the ambiguity and um, you know any movement that demands ideological purity um, is 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 going to be crippled well is going to be um, diminished uh, forgive me um, is going to be diminished by that kind of stringency right so I think we tell both stories and and then we listen um, and we think about making different choices and we experiment with it, um, but our, our students are capable of, of appreciating the, the deep ambiguity that comes from, from uh, negotiating one's time and, and, and being a good person versus an artistic person, etc. Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, there, there's just so many artists who are complete shits. Um, and, uh, you know, as a, I mean, that's, it's kind of easy when you're talking about the canon of English that, you know, when we're going back hundreds of years. But if Weinstein, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe this is a matter of personal taste. I'm not going to stop watching the films that he produced because of his behavior. I don't, it doesn't feel to me so much like a, like a consumer issue, and I wish I could give you a good reason why not. It just feels so. Um, I mean, I wouldn't work with him, but that obviously, you know, I'm, I'm in a very, that's a very niche position. Um, and the same with, same with Polanski. I mean, he's, he's been protected all these years by uh, people saying, oh, but, you know, I mean, what he did was so disgusting, so horrible, and he skipped, and he, he should have been in prison. Uh, but there again, he has made some really wonderful films, and I, you know, it's hard. Um, 
but uh, but as, so from a consumer point of view, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not going to boycott everything made by dreadful people. <laughs> I agree. And having said that, as teachers, I think we do also have a role, so bless you, uh, for uh, inculcating um, uh, consumers who understand their power as consumers and the fact that they have choices and can make informed choices. So if that's the best thing we can do as teachers, then, you know, I think that's a great thing. So you keep going, girl. <laughs> great. Um, next down the front here. Tēnā koutou katoa. Um, I'm Lorraine from um, Ngāti Tūwharatoa. Um, and I think the difference between men and women is taught to you when you're still a baby in some cases, particularly um, where you are sexually abused by your father or your uncle or your brother or any of those people, or maybe all of them. Um, and you live in a community where it's known that it's happening. And I lived in a Māori community which knew it was happening. And you love all those people, not the ones probably that's abusing you, or maybe you do. You still love all these people. They're important to you. Where's your power? What can you do when everyone bands together? I think the film Waru showed a bit about that as well. So, and I'm sure there's plenty in this room who started out life like that. And I went on to be a secondary school teacher and did a lot of work with helping um, abused people, uh, young children, and helping them. But I, it is, there's nowhere to turn. So, yeah, what can you do? This is a, a, an interesting bit of history, which I think, I don't know how many people know this, but less than 200 years ago, my culture was being criticised by the early settlers and missionaries who came here because we were terrible parents. We were terrible parents because we didn't strike our children which was utterly unheard of in, you know, spare the child or spare the rod and spoil the child uh, a society. We were considered to be savages because men carried children around for the first two or three years of their lives. Um, and it's an appalling irony that less than 200 years later, if you are born into a Māori family, you're three times more likely to be killed by a caregiver. So something happened. And that's what I talked about. We, we have to heal the brokenness on so many levels, but it is brave people who do that. It is people who stand up and are prepared to talk about the darkness and shine the light in there that make a difference. So kia kaha to you, my darling. Thank you. Still got no one on the side, so we'll, we'll come back to here. Uh, that was a uh, great session. Thank you very much. I just wondered whether any of you had a view on whether uh, evolution and biology have anything to tell us about how or, or where we've been on these issues, uh, why we are where we are, 
um, how to address it, and even where we want to be uh, going forward, because I didn't hear a lot of that in the discussion that we've had. Thank you. Well, for the next hour and a half, we'll hand over to the scientist. <laughs> well, a classical feminist theory, you know, revolves around the idea that women's bodies create new life and that that's the most potent power in the universe and that the enduring need to control that awesome power is what gave rise to men's neurotic oppression of women. <laughs> right? no, and that's why, that's why we see the policing of female sexuality as, as an all-important thing. I mean, it comes down to it comes down to this, this awesome, awesome magic that resides within a woman's body. Um, and it's up to each one of us to decide how we want to conceptualize that and, and live that out. Um, that's, that's, that's where I think biology comes into it, <laughs> as a biologist. Can I just um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of I'm not, not everyone not agrees a scientist, that, but, but sort of from what I've read. I mean, even when there are differences between men's and women's brains, the question is always: Is this the result of socialization, or is it generally just distinctively there? I mean, you know, the general assumption that there is some scientific evidence that women can multitask is that because women's brains are just different from men's, or is it because women had to multitask on their daily basis and then? Therefore, their brain developed in that way. So I think all the biological data is also ambiguous. Also, I mean, the studies, studies come out and other studies come out to disprove them. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly where the difference between men and women lie, other than the reproduction you talked about in terms of brain capa capabilities and capacities. But all of that seems a little bit vague and ambiguous uh, and a bit um, political to me, the studies that come out. But I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. I study plants. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Which, I, I mean, you're, you're exactly as qualified to speak on the human brain as I am, but I can't speak on the magic of motherhood. I have a son. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I study plants. <laughs> Male and female plants don't exhibit any of these. So. Um, <laughs> There's, there's, not a, there's, there's not a patriarchal uh, construction within the plant world, even though there is definitely male and female um, roles. <laughs> so it's possible. Um, I think we can maybe slide one more under the radar. Um, let's, let's go Rush to this microphone. Maybe one, one, of you can, one of you can ask a question. <laughs> what role do you think religion plays in this issue? What role do you religion? think religion, oh, religion sorry. plays in this issue? Um, I have, for the last five censuses, put my religion as Māori tanga. There are more Jedi in New Zealand than people who put that down. <laughs> um, they're a religion. Um, so I'm speaking as someone who's not from the predominant religion of this country, which is some type of Christianity. Um, 
And so I, although I was raised in a, a Christian household with a Catholic father and a, an Anglican Episcopalian mother, so there was the problem right there. Um, but I have a feeling that institutionalizing faith has not necessarily always served humanity well, unless you happen to be the religion in power. Okay. Um, may I just say something? Yes, you may. Well, um, this issue comes up a lot because I, I have now moved back home and the Middle East, I mean, religion, Islam is, you know, a big, big question. And I speak here as a person who doesn't have a religion, but um, I always tell students that what matters is about interpretation, right? You can have very liberal interpretations of any religious text, or you could have very conservative ones. You could have the version you have, Islamic version of ISIS, which, which claims to be the real truth about Islam, and you can have the Turkish much more open, liberal interpretation, uh, and so on in other countries, in Tunisia, for example. So religious texts, like any other text, like texts of fiction and literature, are open to interpretation, and it depends on who does the interpretations. Unfortunately, most of the time, the people who've done the interpretations have been men, and have been patriarchal men, and they've done it to their advantage. So that's, that's where people who believe in religion, women who believe in that faith, that's their role to come up with a better interpretation that fits with women's rights and democracy in general for us to accept it. I always tell people who are religious, you know, I have students who are very committed, and I say, give me a better interpretation and we can talk. But unless you give me that, this is not good enough. You know? You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.